Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Throughout the long history of sports, all sports, there have been many who have played the game and afterwards became a coach and or a manager. A few have even moved from the playing field to becoming an official. But you'd be hard-pressed to find someone as unique as Hank O'Day. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about the only man who went from player to umpire to manager and back to umpire in the history of Major League Baseball, Hank O'Day. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, thanks for being here as we continue our journey through sports history and talk about the figures of the game whom time has forgotten. And today, another such figure. A guy who not only pitched in the majors, but he was also a manager and an umpire. And it was there, as an umpire, that he made his most significant contributions to Major League Baseball. We're talking about Hank O'Day. And in just a few minutes, Dennis Bingham, who spends his spare time on the diamond umpiring baseball games and who is also a longtime member of Sabre, he'll join us for a most interesting conversation about Hank O'Day. And one thing you'll notice about Dennis, he speaks about O'Day in a most passionate and exhilarating way. Dennis knows the Hank O'Day story better than almost anyone, and I'm thrilled that he agreed to share what he knows about Hank with us. O'Day played in the majors starting way back in 1884 in the American Association, which, at the time, was considered the best baseball there was. Hank pitched for Toledo and later Pittsburgh. Then he moved on to Washington in the National League in 1886 and finished his career in New York playing for the New York Giants where he went 22-13 in his last season. Afterwards, O'Day became an umpire. How he got there is quite interesting. Was surprisingly called back into the dugout as a manager, and then he went back out onto the diamond as an umpire. And it was there, as an umpire, that Hank O'Day made his mark. He was the man in the middle of the famous Merkel Boner, and later, he was asked to consult on several rules, many of which are employed today. O'Day was also as serious as one could get. His life was baseball. 
he conducted himself off the field as if he were still on the diamond umpiring a game. Always serious in almost a very sad matter. And we'll get into all of that with Dennis in just a moment. First, though, a few notes. You can learn more about our guests and the forgotten heroes we talk about by visiting our website, sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. There you can also check out past episodes, check in to see who we're going to be talking about next, and you can even drop us a note and make suggestions for future podcasts. Look for our page on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. And please, let your family and friends know about Sports Forgotten Heroes too. They just might like what you're listening to as well. And as always, please give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. All right, back to O'Day. As I had mentioned before, he consulted on many of the rules of which are still in use today, and he helped nix many other suggested rules. O'Day loved baseball, and he lived it every single day of his life. In fact, if you approached O'Day off the field and you wanted to talk with him about anything other than baseball, he had no interest in carrying on a conversation with you. You might say in his own way, especially during the offseason, Hank O'Day was somewhat of a hermit. But he was one heck of an ambassador for the game and here now. To talk more about Hank O'Day is one of the most passionate guests about his subject matter that we have ever had on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Dennis Bingham. Dennis, tell us a little bit about yourself to start with, your your involvement with Sabre and how long you've been a member and how you stay involved with baseball. Uh, That's a good question. Well, uh, baseball is my passion. It's every almost waking moment that I'm thinking of. There's family, and then there's baseball. So I've always, I wasn't that talented as a player, so uh, I mainly stay into it in umpiring. This is my uh, 51st year, in fact, umpiring this year. Uh, Good for you. I think I started when I was one. No, no, I'm older (laughs) than that, right. No, but uh, so I stay in the game that way, doing all different levels, minor league, college, high school, youth, etc., but I also write a lot about it. I love uh, researching it. Uh, with Saber, God, I've been a member since what the early uh, '80s. Uh, this the 1980s, not the 1880s. I'm not that old. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I I realized when I was there they didn't have an umpires or rules committee, so I founded it with uh, two other members, and uh, so it's a it's a big passion of mine. Uh, baseball, particularly umpire and the rules, etc. Awesome. Now, now let's talk about Hank O'Day. Certainly a tall topic. Why take on such a challenge to write a biography about Hank? I mean, he is certainly one of the most unique individuals to ever put on a baseball uniform or an umpire's uniform. That is true. Well, because he was always being obsessed about umpires. Again, some would call it a fetish. Uh, Hank O'Day was always one of my heroes, even though he, wow, 
We're talking the early part of the 19th century and the early uh, decades of uh, the 20th century. But he was always, because he's so unique, he's uh, one of the few men who have played, umpired, and managed at the major league level. He was a World Series pitching hero. Uh, he was uh, had one of the greatest starts of any rookie manager in history. He was the home plate umpire for 23 World Series games. Wow. Uh, behind the plate for four no-hitters. Uh, but... Again, and he also, he was so influential. He dramatically transformed baseball. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, he played then, a huge but who role. Knows him, yeah, he put, he played a huge role in in the rules in which the game is played by today. So he wasn't just an umpire. He wasn't just a manager. He wasn't just a player. He actually contributed to the way the game is played today. Huge, huge. You can't exaggerate how influential he was. Probably, uh, it's, it's tough to even pick out where he was the most influential, but he has certainly uh, affected the game now. Uh, is prob- not to get into it too much, but what happened was in the 1890s, when he first started umpiring, uh, baseball was in bad shape. It really was. It was a dirty game. It was mm-hmm. a brutal game. Mm-hmm. It was uh, fielders would uh, trip base runners as they're running around the bases. Uh, the umpiring was poor because they're there. Hey, I'm not going to be in this game. Forget it. Women weren't coming out to the ballpark. Attendance uh, kept going down. And that's when Hank O'Day started umpiring. And he started out in the majors, uh, I'm sorry, in the minors. And when he was in the Western League, I don't know if you're familiar with that, it was a minor league in the 1890s, the Western League, run by Ben Johnson. Mm -hmm. And they ran it totally different than any other professional league in that there was very little brutality. There There were suspensions, ejections, Fines. Ben Johnson did a great job. And when Hank O'Day was there, after being a player, he goes, this is the way baseball should and could be. Hmm. So when he was promoted to the majors, that's when he goes, I'm going to change this game. And he did. And in a way, you could say that he saved the game. Also with Ben Johnson, who came up later when he started the American League, in that it became a more popular sport. Mm-hmm. They got rid of the rowdiness, uh, the unsportsmanlike conduct. There were fights on the field almost every day. There was fights in the stands, fans running out on the field, fighting with the players. It was terrible. And O'Day really made a difference by using his authority and changing it. It took guts, but uh, he really helped transform the game. And that's just one small thing with the rules. Sure. How difficult and how long did it take you to write his biography? I mean, after all, there's not a whole lot out there about Hank O'Day. Exactly. That's why it was particularly difficult with him. But the more I looked, though, the more I found, of course, because, he, again, he was so influential. But his name would be hidden in reports. Oh, he did this. He did that. He was a member of the Rules Committee for years. 
Uh, so I would find that, research it, and find the report. Oh, wow. Because what made it tough was he was such a, a stoic, quiet figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't sit for interviews. He wouldn't. Uh, he believed that the players were the most important part of the game, not the umpire. He would eject people, of course, but then he would pull back. He wouldn't, wouldn't hold grudges. So it was tough to find out. But the more I researched, the more I found him as a man. And But you're right. It, it was tough. Uh, it took years on and off. It wasn't like straight mm-hmm. until I was kept building up a nice file on, uh, on this remarkable figure. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most interesting figures in baseball history. Absolutely. What about his upbringing? Where did his interest in baseball come from? That is cool that, okay, because every aspect of his life, it's just, it's fascinating. Okay, he was born in Chicago in 1859. Okay, right from the beginning. Okay, and that that's what makes O'Day interesting. Not so much that he was a great umpire, but just his character. He was such an interesting, oddball character. Well, he would never talk about his age. So there was, everywhere I researched this, the, his birthday. What was it? Was it 1862? Well, that's written on his official card in the Hall of Fame as an umpire. Okay, was it 1858? <laughs> you know, which was on some reports. And then I would find other accounts that it was 1861. But that was crossed off and a, di- a different date was put on. So I'm there, what the heck? And he would never talk about it. Okay, the reporters, because he was known in his time, would ask him, hey, how old are you, old Hank? Wouldn't say. Wouldn't <laughs> say anything. He was very tight-lipped about it. So I researched the census reports, and I found out that he was born on July 8th, 1859. Wow. See, what made it tough is he was born in Chicago. His birth certificate was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. So that's what made it tough. So I had to go to the census reports. Well, in any case, continuing with his early life, which I thought was cool, back to the baseball. He was a middle child of seven, born to deaf parents, James and Margaret, who were Irish immigrants. And and the deaf parents, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yes, there's a a good story with that. that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, in any case, his father just operated a small farm. This was, you know, Chicago, but... That's how he helped make his living. He worked as a plumber a little bit and everything else. But Hank and his two older brothers spent most of their formative years playing baseball on the many open fields of Chicago. Because Chicago in that time would talk in the 1850s, 1860s, a huge semi-pro league. A lot of major leaguers came out of them. It was a huge active league. Charles Comiskey was the same age as Hank, and he was a teammate on one of them. Wow. But the O'Day brothers, they would play under the name Day because they didn't want their father learning about this because he disapproved of his son's plan, what he called the frivolous pastime of baseball. He wanted them to learn a trade. You know what? Let me, let me interrupt you for a second. You know, we hear about sure. this so many times, especially with ball players back in the late 1800s and, and the early 1900s, that right. the parent of the father of the person that we're talking about didn't approve of him playing 
baseball or football, or whatever the sport was. Why do you think that happened? Well, more so uh, for, uh, baseball than the other ones. Baseball was still the big sport, okay? And what it was was it was considered a disputable uh, occupation. No, it was like up there with many uh, being an actor, too. Like in vaudeville was considered, you know, mm -hmm. like, come on. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And uh, particularly what I mentioned earlier was in the 1890s. It was brutal. You know, uh, parents wouldn't let their kids go to ball games because, because of the violence so violent. and the brutality and everything else. So now you're playing it? You know, the, the parents, they meant well. What are you doing this for? Mm -hmm. You know, either you're not going to be talented enough to to play professionally, but even if you were, well, come on, I want you to be a doctor or a lawyer, join mm -hmm. a trade. Mm -hmm. So you're right, though. You're right, Warren, that there's so many accounts of parents, you know, saying, oh, no, don't play. So they played under this fake name, mm -hmm. you know, so their father wouldn't find out. But in any case, what's interesting, back to you talk about their early life with uh, Hank, I call him like he's a personal friend of mine or something. <laughs> no, but it seems like it because I know. I've studied him so much, but um, what it was was there's only two brief incidences that he didn't get a paycheck from baseball. Hmm. He he was obsessed with the game. In his early 20s, Hank worked briefly as a steam fitter's apprentice, and that was one of the only two jobs he ever had outside of baseball. He only worked it with one month, mm -hmm. and he goes, out of heck with this, so to the disapproval of his father, he traveled to faraway California from Chicago to play ball for St. Mary's College. For three years he did this. This mm -hmm. is in his early 20s. Now, so I researched that, and I found out something very interesting. He never attended any classes at St. Mary. <laughs> All he did was play baseball. Because, it, <laughs> because at that time, there was an intense athletic rivalry between California colleges and the schools would recruit ringers to be on their team. Hmm. So in St. Mary college at the time, they must have had an excellent team when O'Day was a member because the team also had seven other players on their team who later became major leaguers, Oh wow! but they never attended any class there. <laughs> you know, Oh no, he, he's a, uh, he's, he's going to the college. Yeah. Did nice they get try. did they get diplomas? Did they graduate or were what, what oh, no. happened? Yeah. No, nothing. They didn't even receive any credits. But <laughs> the reason why uh St. Mary's got away with it was all the colleges in that circuit were doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I'm not gonna call you too much on it because I have my own ringers. So anyway, when that sort of ran out, that's when O'Day goes, well. I'm not gonna. I, I'm gonna become a professional ball player. Sure. Which he did when he joined the minor league team on uh, the Northwestern League in Michigan. Right, Went and he had, he had quite the debut season, did he not? I mean, tell us what you can about that first year of professional baseball, playing in the Northwestern League for Michigan. He was a pitcher and an outfielder. Tell us yeah, about. Yeah, he that. was a pitcher, center fielder. In fact, well, that was routine in that day. When you didn't pitch, he was mainly a pitcher. Uh, you played other positions because there was only like 12 guys on the team or something. Some guy would sprain an ankle. Okay, you know, Hank, go out to uh, center field, whatever. So he was making 125 bucks a month, uh, age 24, 
But during that season, management of the uh, they were financially strapped. The team mm-hmm. they go, we have to reduce the roster. So they had to draw two names out of a hat to keep going. Well, Hank's name was drawn, and it was an appropriate beginning because he was a well-traveled journeyman pitcher in his day. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking 1883 now. So, but he was a good pitcher, uh, at least above average. And uh, wasn't a great pitcher, but a solid one. So the Toledo Blue Stockings, I love the names of those teams, you know, <laughs> uh, of the same minor league, they picked up O'Day. But what's interesting about it was the team also signed catcher Moses Fleetwood Walker. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Well, I, you know what? I am, and I have it written down here. So why don't you tell us, um, you know, well, well, first of all, going back to that Michigan team, it, yes. it was it was a, a little interesting that I guess they decided they had to do it in the most fair fashion, and at that time <laughs> was picking two names out of a hat, and and he was one of the players cut, despite the fact that he was at the time one of the team's best players. So he was, he was, okay. yes. So well said. Yeah, it was. You're right. They probably did it because of fairness. I was wondering, well, why the heck are they getting rid of O'Day, one of the better players? Right. But uh, you're right. It probably was just for fairness. So, uh, so the, then, so the, the, the yeah, team didn't last much longer after that, anyway. So, but uh, okay. And then he goes on. Toledo picks him up, and one of yeah, Hank's Toledo team picks ends. him up, but they also sign almost at the same time Moses Fleetwood Walker. Right. So tell us who, who, yeah, tell us who he was and where he fits in baseball history and Excellent. And what did the two of them mean to Toledo, which by the way played in I believe it was the American Association. Well, you're getting ahead of yourself. Okay. All right. That's well, when you they became a major league team. Okay. But in eighteen eighty three there was still a minor league team. You bring up something interesting, you're right. So they signed Moses Fleetwood Walker, who would later become the first African-American in Major League Baseball history, 63 years before Jackie Robinson. Everybody forgets, you know, Moses Walker. Well, in any case, right away they had these two guys. So they are a minor league team, the Toledo Blue Stockings. So the Sport and Life at that time, which was baseball's leading publication, they were soon proclaiming O'Day and Walker as, quote, one of the most remarkable batteries in the country. Okay, so with the addition of uh, this talented twosome, Toledo quickly rose from fifth place to win the league championship. Mm-hmm. And also, they did quite well, quite well in exhibition games against major league teams. And that's where what you're thinking of. The next season, the Toledo Blue Stockings, they were so brimming with confidence that they joined the major leagues, hmm. which was the American Association. Okay. And that's when Walker became the first black, and O'Day became a major leaguer. Interesting. And what was interesting, when I was researching it, to wrap it up with uh, Moses Walker, uh, Walker, the poor guy, he was on this team, and he suffered much racial abuse from both teammates and opponents. You can imagine. Sure. Okay, this is 63 years before Jackie, and he's the first black here, okay, even though it's in the minors. But, okay, on the team was Tony Mullaney, who was a self-admitted racist, and Kurt Welch, 
two great pitchers, later became major leaguers. He was an open uh, segregationist, okay? They would say that they purposely would throw the ball to hurt the catcher, their catcher. Huh. And I'm there, oh, wow, you know, that's pretty dirty. But then my heart sank. I'm researching O'Day. And there's a very esteemed baseball historian, Lee Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a room named after him in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the greats. Mm-hmm. Well, he mentioned O'Day with Mulaney and Welch as being one of these races. And uh. I go, oh, wow. I go, if this is true, this is a large stain on O'Day's character. And I go, oh, wow. But you have to be truthful to history. You're mm-hmm. an historian. Mm-hmm. So now that gives me another path. Now I'm going to see, hey, now, wait a minute. What is the true story with O'Day's character? So I spent months researching it, and I was interviewing probably David Nemec. He's probably the foremost authority on 19th century baseball. I mentioned it to him. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and all the stuff that he ever researched about O'Day there was no taint of racism. And I go, oh, wow. And I go, what about Lee Allen's column or his quote? Mm-hmm. We threw his name in with these two other guys that were admitted. And he goes, that's the only thing I could find. It probably was an error. I'm there, okay. So then I found this guy named David Zhang, who wrote a biography of Moses Walker. Uh-huh. So I contacted him and I go, hey, what was his relationship? With O'Day, he goes, it was great. They were cordial. The other two guys, Mulaney and Welch, would purposely want to hurt him and make fun of him and everything else. O'Day embraced him, pulled him to the side, supported him, uh, wouldn't do that. They worked together, and that's why they became so successful, and that's why the press was really praising them. Hmm. So, okay, so they had a cordial and great partnership. And that just, you know, makes you made feel me feel good. better. Yeah, it makes you made feel good. Made me feel because I'm there, okay, this O'Day who was my hero, if this was true, forget it. Yeah. You know, the yeah. guy's no good. But uh, all these other historians, they said that, especially the one that did it was this David Zhang, who he was obsessed about Moses Walker. He knew everything about him. And he says, oh, no, they were great. Mm. So, uh so should I continue with now he's a major leaguer or do you have a yeah no yeah. no sure let's um okay. let, let, let's so let's anyway, talk a little bit they're in the major league yeah yeah okay and, and, yep and in his rookie major league season Hank pitches 326 innings okay he led the league in losses he was 9 and 28 but his ERA was outstanding and it was a last place team he was the best pitcher on that team, though, even though he lost 28 games. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in any case, well, what happened was uh, they did so bad, Toledo, that they were dropped from the majors. Yeah, exactly. So now he's exactly. there, okay, back to the journeyman thing. He's been on four teams in two years, you know, and okay. So now it's 1885. And he's uh, 26 years old. Oh, but to wrap it up, just uh, I wanted to find out what type of a pitcher was he. I was, I have was that written. That, yes. Was it Can a you tell me? What yeah. did he throw? What did he? So, yeah, and it was interesting. Uh, he was very crafty, they said on the mound. 
but he threw and he had a world of stuff. That was the quote. But what was interesting, every catcher that caught him said he threw the heaviest and hardest ball they ever caught. They said it was like catching a shot put. Hmm. In fact, some of the catchers would, to protect their hand with those primitive gloves that they wore, they would insert a slab of raw meat into the thin catcher's glove whenever they had to catch O'Day because of his fastball. They said it was one catcher said that it was like a shell from a cannon. So I learned, that oh, that, that was it. He mainly threw a fastball. Well, in any case, now here he is, 26 years old. Again, he's without his team. Okay, his old team was dropped from the majors. They disbanded. But he was able to stay in the major leagues because he signed with Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Great, for the next year. But unfortunately, his father back in Chicago was dying. Hmm. He loved his father, would travel back to Chicago a lot of times, and he would miss starts. The team got upset with him, and they released him. So now he goes, okay, he stays in Chicago. After his father died, he sent out his resume in that, and the best he could find was Washington, D.C., because this is the middle of the season, Washington, D.C.'s minor league club. They uh, pick him up. Mm-hmm. And he is outstanding the rest of the year because it was a decent ball club. He finally has some support. He had a 13 and two record, and his earned run average was 0. 0.74. Wow! But again, poor Hank. This success was tempered because again he had to return to Chicago. He received news that his 16 year old brother had died after fraction of the skull fallen from an amusement park roller coaster in Chicago. Yeah. So he goes, oh boy. So excellent. So he goes and the Washington, D.C. minor league club, they disbanded. He goes, oh boy. So now he's without a team again. (laughs) I wouldn't want to sign him because every team he plays for ends up going out of business. (laughs) (laughs) That's well said. So anyway, so he signs with Savannah. Georgia. Uh-huh. And again, he is outstanding. He's 26 and 11, and his own run average is 1.03. Again, but this is a minor league team. So anyway, the Detroit Wolverines, they were a major league team in the National League. Mm-hmm. They were in a hot battle to win the pennant. Okay, this is 1886. Mm-hmm. So they pick him up. They pick him up late in the season. Great. He is overjoyed until he learns, oh, no, this is like a three-part deal. Detroit was immediately selling them to the last place Washington Nationals. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Right. So the only good thing is, with his new club, Hank finally finds some stability. He remains with them for two full seasons, which is a rarity for him. Again, the team is terrible, though. They're in last place. He did lead the league in the statistical category for his first and only time in his major league career. But it was a dubious one. Most hit by batters. And I think losses, too. And I think losses, too. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, that was a different year. You're good. You did your homework, right? But one thing going for him was he was definitely the team's workhorse. Uh For the two years, he pitched more than... 650 innings. 
Wow. It, it was nuts, okay? And what was interesting is uh, Catcher was the venerable Connie Mack. And they became friends. Yeah. You know, he was his battery mate. Uh-huh. So in any case, okay, we're moving along. Now it's 1889. And this and is big. Hold, hold on, hold on. This is big because this is when he gets what I think is the biggest break in his career, 1889. And he proved to be a most crucial component to the team that he winds up with. So why don't you tell us about that? You said it. You hit it on the mark. Okay. Uh, that 1889 season, his sixth major league season, was definitely the most thrilling and satisfying of his playing career. Okay. He began the year with the last place Washington. He had a two and ten record. But the New York Giants, okay, in the same league, they were fighting for dependent. And they saw something special in O'Day, and they purchased some. And what was amazing for the time, they gave Hank $200 of the cut. Hmm. You know, whoa, you know, which is big money then. Well, now he's finally supported by a solid offense. This was a new experience for Hank. <laughs> the Giants had four Hall of Famers in their lineup. They had two Hall of Famers in their rotation. However, what was fascinating was here you had this journeyman pitcher. It was O'Day who proved the difference because he comes in and he wins nine games down the stretch, and they won the pennant. Yeah, he went nine. They and definitely one. wouldn't have won it without him. Yeah, he went nine yes. and one with ten complete games, and then and then in a championship series against Brooklyn. It was not a best of seven. It wasn't a best of five or a best of three. <laughs> no, a it was a best, best of, 11. of 11. And tell us what happened there because it was O'Day and a guy by the name of Cannonball Crane who made <laughs> yeah. all the difference in the world for the Giants. Exactly. They had the Giants hitters were outstanding, but they're two aces. These are future Hall of Famers. Tim Keith. And Mickey Welch, they were pounded. They looked like sandlot pitchers. So New York found itself behind early in the series. Now, the Giants manager, Jim Mutry, he turns to his two backup guys, Cannonball Crane, and don't you love the names of those it's 19th great. century guys? It's <laughs> awesome. And Hank O'Day, he says, you're going to pitch the rest of the game, the rest of the series. And this is a best of 11. And they responded with six consecutive wins to capture the crown for the New York Giants. So all and Brooklyn Hank, had to do was win one more game, basically. Exactly. And, uh, and he was the hero. A war, the, even though it was an early World Series, some of it don't consider it official, but I certainly do. He was dazzling in the mound, uh, on the mound. He, was, he won the only two low-scoring games, won to tie the series, and he won the one that was the deciding contest. Hmm. In 23 innings, he gave up three earned runs. Wow. And the hitters batted a microscopic 135 batting average against him. Wow. So anyway, he's on cloud nine now. Finally, this was his greatest season. Well, it didn't last long. Yeah, okay, so let's let's go there. So after that 1889 season... 
O'Day joined about, I don't know, 150 or so other players, and he jumped to the newly formed Players League. So what what was the impetus for the Players League? Well, okay, for decades, they were like, they had no power whatsoever, the players. The owners had everything. There was no unions at that time. You started a union, well, you were just fired. You're just out of here, you know. Obviously, they want, and they paid their best ball players like peanuts. They gave them almost nothing. So finally, the players, uh, they were fed up with this treatment. And they go, wait a minute, where's the talent? So they formed their own major league. And it's a considered an official major league. There was three major leagues in that year, 1890. The National League, which still exists, the American Association, and they died shortly thereafter because the third league was the Players League. Mm-hmm. That's what it was called, the Players League. Mm-hmm. Now, and 12 members of the 1889 World Champions, including Hank O'Day, they started their own team. They call themselves the New York Giants, but we're now the new New York Giants of the Players League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, unfortunately, uh, at least I think, it would have really changed baseball history. These ball players were, they weren't businessmen, of course. So the league died, even though more people were going there. Uh, because this is where the talent was. Mm-hmm. You could really say that in those two, that year, the National League and the American Association, they were barely major league mm-hmm. caliber. Mm-hmm. You could call them, even though in the official books, all those major league records count, they were really high minors. And the Players League, they had all the best ball players. But mm-hmm. it dissolved after one year. Because uh, business, it, uh, the players didn't know how to you know, run the business. Mm-hmm. But it was another fine year for O'Day. He pitched, uh, he won 22 games, uh, pitched 329 innings. Well, and what happened was uh, the Players League folded after one season, 1890, and all the circuit's players, they scattered. Most of them returned into the big league club of the previous year that they ran. A lot of them went back to the New York Giants of the National League. All right, well, hold on, hold on. I have a question here. I have a question here. Did sure. the stats from the Players League carry over? Do you know if the stats from the Players League carried over into the final stats? Uh, were they considered major league stats? I guess did did they? One hundred percent. Okay. Okay. I was just one hundred percent, and they had to even in the time. Because a lot of the newspapers and uh, the sporting news and all those big publications, a lot of them didn't like the Players League. They wanted, you know, they were like upstarts. They called them rebels. But to their credit, hey, wait a minute. These are the most talented people, talented ball players in the league, in the in the country. It would be weird not counting their stats before. And after, but not during that one year. So mm-hmm. reluctantly, so if you look at the official uh, baseball encyclopedia, all those stats count okay. as well okay. they should. Mm-hmm. But that, that's a good question. Um, but in any case, here it was. What was unfortunate for Hank, it was uh, Hank.
Hanks' last major league season as a player. Yeah, his arm was. Is, yeah, they they he got he was over pitched. I guess his arm was hurting. And the one thing you wrote about after that one year in the players' league. Um, that I found really interesting, and I and I never knew about this, was the fact that baseball moved the pitcher's mound back to sixty feet and six inches. That's um, true. And yes. and how far was it previous to that, and um, why did they move it? And obviously, the extra distance hurt Hank. He just couldn't be effective at that point in his career from 60 feet, six inches. Exactly. Excellent question. What happened was by this time, the many innings he had hurled over the previous seven years as a major leaguer, they had taken their toll. His right arm was dead. And to made it even worse was they had just recently, just then, they increased the distance from the mound. Now, oh my God, I got to learn this. But where everybody's mistaken, the distance before, it was a pitcher's box. Mm. You still hear that term. Oh, that's a single through the box, even though it hasn't been a box since uh, 1893. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so here you had that. And what happened was the front line of the box was 50 feet. But the back line was 55 feet. Hmm. So it wasn't. Uh, so you see, you read a lot that oh, the distance was increased from fifty feet to sixty feet six inches. That's ten feet. No, it was really only five feet because it was pushed back from the back of the box. Hmm. So what happened was they took rather than a, a better uh, pitcher's box, and we still have it today. That was one of the biggest transformations in baseball. Sure. Rather than that, they put it at 60 feet, 6 inches, and they uh, put a slab, a rubber slab. Now, rather than pitching from a box, you got to pitch from your foot on this slab. Why, why, did, why did they move it, though? What, what was the reason for making um, where they threw from 60 feet, 6 inches instead of 55 feet? What happened was, well, to make it interesting, too, it was really 55 and a half feet was the back line. <laughs> okay. So that's how we get to six inches. So, sometimes you read this in baseball books was that, oh, why is that odd distance of 60 feet, six inches? How come it isn't just 60 feet? And then occasionally you'll still see these in publications was that, well, when they first did it, the surveyor made an error, and he he read it wrong, and he made it an additional six inches, which, when you really think about it, really doesn't make any sense. Everybody made the same mistake. What it really was was they were just putting an additional five feet behind the line from the previous season. So it was only, and since that was 55 and a half feet, now it's 60 feet and a half feet, mm. and that's why you have the odd distance. But back to what you were saying, what they what they wanted to make it tougher on the pitcher, because you could do some wild stuff in there. Mm -hmm. You could turn your back, you could go from way. It was more like fast-pitch softball. You see that where guys are jumping all over, and, you know, they wanted to increase offense. Because, uh -huh. again, this is entertainment. It's money. When offense goes down, 
people aren't coming out to the ballpark. The average sure. fan. Sure. The true fans, oh, they like seeing a two-to-one thing, but the average fan doesn't. They want to see action. People want to see stuff happen, not stuff prevented from happening. So uh, the offense was going down steadily the previous years. So they go, wow, we have to change this. And that was a remarkable change. Mm -hmm. So They're still thinking about it now, moving it back. But that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's, uh, yeah, they always try to get that perfect balance between offense and defense. But that's why they changed this. Mm -hmm. So O'Day was really screwed. Yeah, and this was about, about his yeah. arm was dead. Yeah. No team wanted a 35 year old with, you know, a dead arm. They increased the distance, so it's even more likely that he's going to come back. But again, O'Day loved baseball. So he was determined to um, extend his baseball life. So for the next three years, he toiled for four different teams in four different minor leagues, moving one from one to another. Uh -huh. Every year he had a losing record, but every year he had decent earned run averages, but never good enough by any means to make it back to the big leagues. Mm -hmm. He was like an average minor leaguer in those days at best. Mm -hmm. So he looked, and he, he, yep, so this is when he says, eh, you know what, let's try something different. Let's exactly. let's try umpiring. And here's the cool thing. Uh, during his playing days, there were a couple of times where he was called upon to umpire and he did a pretty darn good job at it. So where did his interest in umpiring come from? And, uh, yeah, tell us about uh, the, the move from uh, playing to becoming the guy who made the calls. Very good. You see, because what happened was you have to remember, he did umpire before, but this is back in his playing days, and he never uh, thought of umpiring as a career or even – he only thought of it now in 1893 because, I, oh, man, I want to stay in baseball. But what happened was what you mentioned was really fascinating. Okay, during his era, when he was a pitcher in the major leagues and into the early years of the 20th century, this lasted for 40 years, only one umpire was selected to work major league games. And quite often, the umpire wouldn't even show up by the game time. It could be because of travel disruptions, uh, illness, uh, or usually he just simply quit. There was a brutal time to be an umpire, and he says, no way am I going to do it. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> whenever this occurred, the two managers would get together because you have, you know, you have all these fans in the stands. You don't want to send them home. Nobody makes any money. Everybody's upset. They just want a game to be played. So whenever this occurred, and it wasn't common, but it certainly wasn't uncommon. Okay, during the time that O'Day was uh, a player, 135 times uh, a player had to serve as an umpire for a game. Wow. So 135 times over a span of seven years. Well, not common, but certainly not uncommon. Well, in any case, what happened was the two managers would get together and they would select one of their players to umpire the game. So there would be two umpires. And usually it was a pitcher on his off day or a catcher needing a day off. 
and the selected player would have to be agreed upon by the opposing manager. Because, you know, the character or something. Hey, guys had reputations, you know? Mm -hmm. You want it to be fair. So, okay, and the players would umpire the game in their baseball uniforms. That must have been a sight, you know? (laughs) So in any case, well, even when he was a rookie um, pitcher with Toledo in the major leagues, 1884, O'Day was selected to serve as the umpire when the regular guy, regular arbiter had failed to show up. Mm-hmm. He had never done it before. But it was amazing. You read the accounts of that game, and they praise him, call him a natural. And what was fascinating, everybody else, you were always selected one guy. Oh, let's give this guy a chance to umpire and all this stuff. Hank, in his era, was would serve as a substitute umpire for seven games. Far more than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Everybody else would do one or two games. Okay, let's have this guy. Because uh, he had a reputation even then for his honesty and integrity and talent. Hmm. So that's why they would select him to be, serve as the player umpire. Hmm. And uh, what was interesting is when he was the umpire for those seven games, his team lost four times. (laughs) <laughs> now, you can imagine his teammates had some choice words for him in the clubhouse afterwards. I'm but again, sure. that was his character, was that, hey, baseball, no, you don't mess with it. You always have to be fair. Uh, so anyway, now he's at a crossroads. 1894, he doesn't know what the heck to do. Maybe uh, I'll go into umpiring. So he did it briefly in the uh, minor leagues. But then, and this is what's interesting, I still don't know exactly why. Well, I do know why he returns to Chicago. Because, again, more tragedies. He had several of them. Uh, his older brother, age 38, who he played ball with in the Sandlots, uh, he committed suicide. Uh, his mother died. All during this period, uh. he comes back to visit her. His younger sister dies. All this, so he comes back to Chicago. And uh, he takes a job in Chicago City Recorder's office. So this is only the second job he ever had outside baseball. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, it's probable that he's given up baseball as a career because he took the security of a government job. But uh, why he gave it up, I don't know. Uh, it wasn't because he wasn't tough. It would be proved years later. You know what I mean? Maybe it was a low salary. I don't know. But in any case, he was there with his family. But here is the cool part, and baseball benefited from it. Fortunately for baseball, O'Day remained a dedicated baseball fan, and he would often visit the ballpark, taking a day off of being a clerk to catch a game. So anyway, on July 7th, Hank O'Day is sitting in the grandstands among 9,000 other fans awaiting the start of the Chicago Cubs and Cleveland Spiders game. Okay, and what happens is the Chicago team owner, James Hart, he notices O'Day, O'Day in the stands. And he comes up to him and he goes, Hank, you know, because he remembered him as a player. He goes, can you do me a favor? Can you serve as the umpire? 
you know, rather than get a player. Sure. You know, you used to do it before. You know, I remember. And Hank, okay, he agrees. And the rest, they say, is history. During that contest, the game, it was really close. There was not even a semblance of anybody arguing. Mm-hmm. He took control. If anybody would push another guy or something, he would just come right up to him and stop it. But sitting in the stands, uh, it was weird. There was four owners of National League teams. They were there for some meeting or something like that. They saw it. Mm-hmm. And they were so impressed with Hank's work as an umpire that they all contacted National League President Nick Young to immediately hire him as a full-time Major League umpire. So that just proves that he was a natural. He must have had something special knack sure. for doing it. He sure. never really did it before. So anyway, he's offered a contract, and he accepts it. Mm-hmm. And it would prove to be the wisest decision he ever made because, hey, this was a role he was born to perform. Sure, a great so a great decision. The, yeah, a great decision for baseball, oh, too. And, and fortunately for every baseball fan, they came after, including now. Because uh, you'll see, you know, more of what he does. Well, he quits his job, signs the contract. Two days later, he's calling balls and strikes for the Giants' Cubs game in Chicago, and 48 hours earlier, he was just a fan in the stands. <laughs> so for the remainder of the season, he travels all around the National League, and he umpires every day straight for a total 75 games. Wow. But but this is where he's cool, okay? Uh, it was, and, and like I mentioned, it was a brutal period at that time, and that's when Again, the integrity. He realized, no, I'm not a good enough umpire as I could be. So he tells the National League, I'm going to the minors to learn my craft better. And they were stunned for less money and everything else. He's going to do this. So that's when he goes to the Western League. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about earlier, this was an epiphany for him. This was incredible. You know how structured it was. It was it was excellent. Ben Johnson was in charge, and he would find guys. He would do everything to help keep the game under control. And again, that's where it was like a revelation to him. He goes, this is the way baseball should be played. So now, the next year, he's back. He's back in the majors. And that's when he was determined to do his best to improve the game. And again, it was one of his most immense contributions to the game. He used the full use of all the weapons an umpire mm-hmm, has mm-hmm. to form and enforce some discipline. Mm-hmm. Warning, fines, ejections, forfeits, w- recommended suspensions, did everything. Boom. He ejected players at a steady clip. In fact, O'Day has the third highest ejection rate of any umpire in history. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So now, now, now... I got to ask you, yes. ejections and Connie Mack. Oh, wow. That, that's a good one. Right. Uh, what happened was this was back when he first umpired. Uh, and it's back two years earlier before he came back from the minors when he was just working those games. And what happened was he was doing a game. That, that is a great story. Uh, he is old friend. His old battery mate, his old catcher, was manager 
at the time. And unlike, you know, usual, he's a saintly gentleman, Connie Mack. He was never ejected from a ball game for 50 years, except once by Hank O'Day. <laughs> so that just tells you something right there. He, for 50 years as a manager, Mack was never ejected except for once. And that was it. And he goes, well, that was his attitude. O'Day, I don't care if you're a friend. You know, you're mm -hmm. gone if mm -hmm. you don't respect the game. Yep. You have to respect the game. All right. I, so, I got it. Yeah. I got it. Yep. So now we're going to jump ahead many years because oh, we're boy. talking about him as, as, as an umpire right now. And then we're going to go back. But the most okay. legendary of all his games as an umpire occurred on September 23rd, 1908. The Cubs and the Giants, the Merkel Boner. Again, I'm going to turn it over to you. Please give us a little historical context on how big this game was, how hotly contested it was, and what happened. Wow. I knew you were going to get to this, and it's like, whew, it's a biggie. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You could simply say that the Merkel game, uh, you, you could say it's the most celebrated most widely discussed, the most controversial contest, not just in baseball, in the history of sports. Maybe the Dempsey fight, you know, with the boxing thing. Maybe that comes second. But mm -hmm. the Merkel game far surpasses it. In fact, no game in all of baseball history has had more written about it than this game. Mm -hmm. So here we go. Yes, it's, uh, oh boy, yes, it's, it's a biggie. Uh, okay, September 23rd, 1908. This is the most exciting baseball race in baseball history, even without this famous game. Mm -hmm. Well, O'Day's ruling, that game, sent a shockwave throughout the baseball world. It turned the most exciting race of all time into the most controversial, the most troubling. And, well, that decision became o O'Day's legacy. Uh, it's even on his Hall of Fame plaque, but that's a different thing. First, we have to set the stage, because everybody has a different opinion about the game. Did O'Day do the right call, or didn't he? Now, you have to, to set the stage. He was an umpire for 12 years at this point in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. He was 49 years old. He was highly respected for his the way he handled the game. Okay, so now... There was an uh, interesting practice at that time. Players at the end of the game would either walk or run onto the field. It was accepted now. Now you only see it, you even rarely see it now, when Hank Aaron hit his homer or Bill Mazurowski hit his homer mm -hmm. or you win the seventh game of the World Series. You'll see all these fans run out onto the field. Mm-hmm. To celebrate. No, okay, great. Now security is a little bit better. You don't see it. But back in those early days of the 20th century, very common. At the end of the game, fans were walking out on the field. They could be going to their car in the parking lot in the outfield. That's where there was an entrance and exit. It was just a common practice. You went out on the field, the fans, hundreds of them, thousands. And if it was a victory, an exciting walk-off victory. They would be charging out there, grabbing the players, putting them on their shoulders, stealing their caps. And it's important that I mention this common practice 
because it had been going on for decades because it plays a pivotal part in the famous or infamous Merkel game. Uh, okay, so here it is. So the practice was, since the fans would run out on the field, the players, they would run off the field as fast as they could, holding their hat, their cap, so it wouldn't be taken, and run to the clubhouse mm-hmm. in the outfield. Mm-hmm. Everybody did it. Okay, it would happen once a week. Great. So here we have this game. This is an intense pennant race. Who's going to win it? The Giants, the Cubs, or the Pirates? A virtual tie. Mm-hmm. So it's every game is at the end. This is the end of the season. About two more weeks to go. So here we have the bottom of the ninth, and the Cubs are at the Giants' polo grounds. There's two outs. The score is tied. Perfect. Moose McCormick is on first base. Fred Merkel is a 19-year-old rookie. 19 years old, a teenager. He faithfully started that game at first base because the regular first baseman, Fred Tunney, was injured. If just any little thing was changed, baseball history would be changed. That's what makes <laughs> it so fascinating. So anyway, Moose McCormick is on first. Merkel hits a single to right center. McCormick scampers to third base, and this is where it's important. It was reported that Merkel possibly could have ran to second for a double because it was hitting the gap. But with two outs, this is too risky. His run didn't mean anything. He's thrown out. That's the end of the inning. There's two outs. So it's interesting to think how different it would have been had he tried to stretch it into a double. But he Mm -hmm. didn't. Mm Mm-hmm considering what comes afterwards. So now the score is tied two outs with runners on first and third. Al Bridwell comes to bat, and he rips a solid single to center field. It was hit directly toward the base umpire, Bob Emseal, who has to die to the ground to get out of the way of the sizzling line drive. Now McCormick from third base scores with quotation marks around it, easily from third base, apparently ending the game. The fans go crazy, and hundreds of them run onto the field in celebration, believing their team had a walk-off victory. However, Merkel, the rookie, he had stopped halfway to second, (laughs) sees the fans, and goes running to the Giants' outfield clubhouse to escape them. Again, common practice, okay, no problem. What follows next was pure pandemonium. Sally Hoffman, the Cubs center fielder, runs after the ball as the fans are swarming on the field. Johnny Evers, the Cubs second baseman, is standing on second base screaming for the ball. He's screaming for it because under the rules, if Merkel is forced out at second, the run doesn't count. Right. And it goes into extra innings. Right. That's the key. Whenever a run can never score, when a base runner is forced out. So now, Evers was, he was smart. Okay, so Hoffman throws the ball off the mark into the infield, where a Cubs player picks it up. Seeing what was happening, New York Giants' Joe McGinnity, he realizes, oh, my God, Evers is going to do this. Never thought of that. 
He's going to get the out. Man, our victory is going to be taken away. So Joe McGinnity, the coach, Hall of Fame pitcher, by the way, but whatever, he's just a coach at this time. He runs and he takes the ball from the Cubs, <laughs> the Cubs uh, infielder. Now you can imagine fans are swooping out there. They think they won. They don't see what's going on. He grabs it. And he throws it into a group of fans. McGinnity throws the ball into a group of fans behind third base. (laughs) It hits some fan who's wearing a derby in it. So in any case, Evers, he's not giving up. He eventually gets a baseball. If it's an actual game ball, nobody will ever know for sure. Sure. But but he's standing on second base with this baseball. And he's declaring a force out. Merkel is out. And the game... It's got to go into extra innings. We're going to the 10th inning. We didn't lose. Now, the Cubs shortstop, Joe Tinker, he's pleading with the umpire, Enseal, to call the out. But in the chaos, Enseal says, hey, I don't know if Merkel touched second base. I can't call him out. No umpire in his right mind will call a guy out if he didn't see it. So he's assuming that Merkel, okay, touched the base and the game's over. Because remember, he had jumped out of the way of the line drive, so he didn't see it. However, Hank O'Day was the home plate umpire. And being the excellent umpire that he is, he was watching everything. So he goes out and he confers with his partner. Again, here's another thing that people forget about. Under the rules, an umpire cannot change the call of another umpire. He could give him more information and a judgment call. He can give more information. Hey, his foot came off the base. Oh, and then he changes his call. That's how they work as a team. So he couldn't go out there and go, oh, no, no, he's out, he's out. Because then the other team would protest, hey, you can't tell him. You've got to give him the information, and he changes it. So O'Day comes running out to his partner and tells them, Merkel never touched second. And Enfield wow. goes, what? He goes, he just ran directly to the clubhouse. Evers has the ball. You should call him out. So Enfield calls the force out. <laughs> now, this nullifies the win and run, and O'Day proclaims the game a tie. But the game did not continue in the extra innings because Hank also determines that by the time the grounds would be clear to fans, it would be too dark for further play. Now, the fans out on the field, they hear this, and they surround O'Day, and they began pounding him, punching him, kicking oh him. Other fans start doing it to his partner. What the heck are you doing here? Okay, there were attackers on the outside of this, like, mob. They're throwing newspapers and cushions and bottles at O'Day. Well, finally, police officers rush in to rescue the umpires, and they escort them to the safety of the umpire's dressing room. Okay. Now, the fans, some of them knew. A lot of them didn't. Some uh, reporters are reporting that it was a walk-off victory for the Giants. Other reporters, this is just a chaos. This is a cluster thing. Okay. So now, what was interesting Both teams put the game under protest, Mm. saying that they had won the game. Now, the Cubs argue that they went on forfeit. 
because of the lack of security, which prevented the game continuing. That was knocked out because O'Day says it would have been too dark anyway. Okay. The Giants argue that no way this is a crime. This is a shame. You should not be penalized for technicality. Merkel's actions was an act that had gone unpunished by umpires for decades. Mm. Now you're going to call it for a crucial game, and that's where there's a controversy. You still see some highly respected baseball people, baseball historians, saying that, O'Day, this is a terrible call by him. Okay. Now, the National League president, Harry Pulliam, he denies all protests, and he upheld Hank's decision. And he said the game will be replayed in its entirety Wow! the day after the season, on October 8th, if necessary. See, he's trying to get out of this controversy sure. by saying, okay, it might not even be played. What if the Cubs win the next eight games? Right. You know what I mean? Or oh, we don't Giants even have to play. Or the, or the Pirates, Giants, yeah. or the Pirates, whatever. Okay, what he should have did, and both teams wanted it, Okay, even though both teams wanted a victory, but if we're going to replay it, let's have a doubleheader the next day. But, but he didn't National League President Pulliam would hope that it would just become a moot point. Okay, great. Uh, but they didn't do a D, uh, doubleheader. If they would have did a doubleheader, it would have dampened the controversy. You know, uh, instead, discussion now... This was hanging over the head, the famous Merkel game. Discussion of it simmered for days. It festered into a huge deal the next two weeks. There were scathing editorials and extreme pressure that O'Day and Pulliam changed their decision, award the win to New York. But the two, they remained steadfast. They go, no, this is the right thing. They go, no, you shouldn't win on some good, trivial thing. Okay, so there was an appeal process now. You can appeal it, and it goes to the Special National Commission. So that takes them 10 days, and they, they support Pulliam's decision. No, the rule is that if you're forced out, great. Now there was a complaint that they go, hey, we don't even know if he had the right ball. How can they call him out? <laughs> and O'Day goes, I don't care. I saw the interference. I'm going to allow it even if Evers never even touched it because a New York player interfered with the ball that was thrown in and the ball was still live. Okay, you see, he's following the rules. He goes, boom, this is it. Now, Hank's call becomes crucial because, believe it or not, the Giants and Cubs finished the season in the dead heat with identical records of 98 and 55. Now the Merkel game had to be replayed, which the Cubs won, giving them the pennant. And whoa, and New York uh, Giants, they, uh, the press, everybody believes they got ripped off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, but also it was interesting, that game itself, uh, because there's two games that are called the Merkel game. The replay game is called the Merkel game, because that was crucial. Whoever wins this wins the pennant. Right. The other game they called the Merkel's boner game. Right. Yeah, sounds like 
some title for a porn movie, but it was <laughs> Merkel's Boner is what it was. Because what it was was poor Merkel. Yeah. He was crucified by the press and the fans. They called him stupid. They called him an idiot. They called him bonehead. That became his nickname for the rest of his career, his 16-year major league career. McGraw never blamed him. A lot of people didn't blame him. Uh, well, it was interesting, the term bonehead and boner, okay, it was created by that incident. Huh. Yeah. Oh, but in any case, wow. yeah. Yeah. in fact, Bridwell said that he wished he never got that hit because the poor Merkel was, you know, saddled with the nickname Bonehead for the rest of his life. Oh, but back my. to the second Merkel game, that was also fascinating, even though we're getting away from O'Day. Uh, both teams, whoever wins this game wins the playoff. Now we're used to it with the wild card or right, the playing game. Right. That was big then. You win this game, you go immediately to the pennant. Originally, the Giants said, we want to play a three-game series. Because under the rules, it said that if the season ends in a tie, you do a playoff, best of three. But O'Day, always following the rule, goes, whoa, whoa. This is a replay game. Yeah, yeah. The team isn't tied at the end of the season. We have to replay this game if necessary. Right. So now they're really mad at O'Day because now it comes down to one crucial game. And it was a wild one also. Both teams, what they tried to do, they took their subs before the game when they were working out to try to pick a fight with the star of the other team. So both guys would be ejected, oh, and the style would be kicked out, but also the sub. Great. But both teams are doing it, so it didn't work. Well, the Cubs won, and again, the Giants ran onto the field. But this time, they, guess what they did? Oh, man, it was just, that was a brutal time. They attacked the Cub players. Oh, gosh. Manager Chan suffered a blow to his throat. He couldn't speak for four days. Uh, Cub pitcher, Jack Feister was slashed on the shoulder by a knife. Oh, Police rescued them, barricaded them in the thing. It was it was wild. Eventually, uh, police had to draw their revolvers and push them back the mob. Wow. Okay. So, But now it was interesting to wrap it up. Uh, the game cost Merkel's reputation. He was called Bonehead for the rest of his life. But the National League president, it cost him his life. Okay, oh, my. You see, yes. Harry Pulliam, after the season, he had a nervous breakdown because of the Merkel game. All the criticism from the press and from other people saying, oh, you can't support O'Day on this, on the technicality. No, I'm going to support the umpire. So he had a nervous breakdown. So uh, so he took a leave of absence, and then on July 28th of the next year, he went to the New York Athletic Club, entered a room, pulled out a gun, and shot himself in the head. Oh, and this gosh. is, again, how the Merkel game just has, oh, man, how tragic it was. He was 39 years old. Um, he left no suicide note. It was a tragic figure. He was a sensitive gentleman in supporting the umpires, and I believe he did the right thing. Sure. Okay, he was often taken advantage of, well, at the funeral, every team attended the funeral. They sent a representative Except for except, the Giants. Except for the Giants. And John McGraw, his famous quote is, very callous, I didn't think a bullet to the head could hurt that guy. Oh, gosh. I know. Oh. So anyway, but now the third, you had Merkel, you had Pulliam, that affected their life. 
costs one is life itself, and the other one is reputation as an idiot. But O'Day, he was the other big participant in the infamous game. He would umpire another 17 years, and every time he entered the polo grounds, there was abuse and garbage thrown at him by the giant fans who believed he is the one that robbed them of a championship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So the question is, did O'Day make the right decision? I think so. He, he followed it by the rules. That's it. Yeah. And not only this, this is a key thing that everybody forgets. Okay, uh, Bill Clem. He's probably the most famous umpire. Right, and he was. trained okay. under O'Day. O'Day. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He was right. O'Day helped him. Well, in an interview conducted years after the incident, yeah. O'Day had been dead. Clem says that he called it the rottenest decision ever made in baseball. Yeah, he which should is really never dirty. Said that. This is a fellow I'm saying that. He said, though, that he maintained that a player had a right to leave the field when there was no reasonable doubt that the game was over. That's Clem saying this. He goes, the intent of the rule applies only to infield grounders. It does not apply to hits to the outfield, which is dead wrong. Of How many times have you, as a fan, have seen runners being forced out at second it's when an outfield would play, drop the ball? A force play is a force play, period. Yes. A man on first, fly ball to the right fielder, the guy drops it. What does he do? He throws to second, gets the force. You know, yeah. The bottom line is, but here's the key thing. And they go, well, this has never been enforced for decades. How can you enforce it now? And guess what? He he said it best. The bottom line is you can't make any call unless the defense makes an appeal. Yeah. As soon as O'Day saw him run to the outfield, Merkel, I'm not going to do anything. Oh, now they're going to play. Now they're making an appeal. Now the defense is taking action. Now I'm going to call it. It's like when you miss a base or bat out of order. The ump has to wait for an appeal. And that's why it wasn't called before. as ever mm -hmm. that deserves the credit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, By the way, let's let, let's wrap up this the, the Merkel part, uh, the the Merkel boner with this. Fred Merkel ended up playing a total of sixteen years, and he played three of those years with the Cubs long after, no. long after he played for the Giants. So as much as it did affect him, he did enjoy quite a lengthy career playing sixteen years. He did. He did. It was, but you know what? He suffered through it. I mean, every time he went to a ballpark, there were fans, some even friendly fans. Oh, make sure you touch second base. And they were, yeah. in fact, what was sad was to wrap up the thing with Merkel was that he should be forgiven. Uh, I mean, he did what any other player would sure. have done. But what happened was at the end of his playing career, he would be invited back to old timers games and everything else. He wouldn't attend them. He goes, oh, my God, no. Yeah. He says, they just crucified me. And finally he did. He goes, but I'm not putting on an old uniform. And he was happy he did. So I'm glad he died happy because he finally came back. He was an elderly man. He came mm -hmm. back to uh, the polo grounds, and the fans welcomed him. And there was tears in his eyes. It was good. That's but he good. suffered for a long time That's good. before that. Hey, Dennis, we jumped way ahead. I jumped way ahead by yes. going all the way out to 1908 to talk about the Merkel Boner. But before all that happened, 
Yes. Hank O'Day actually went into the dugout and became a manager, did he not? Yes. Right? So yes. how did he end up going from a baseball player to an umpire, and then all of a sudden he's in the dugout as the manager of the Cincinnati Reds and then later the Chicago Cubs? I know. That was amazing. And that was uh, – everybody was stunned. Here he's one of the most respected umpires. He had been umpiring at that point like uh, – almost 20 years, and he stuns everybody by becoming, accepting the job to be the Cincinnati manager. And he did pretty well, too. And But what was interesting it was that he didn't put on the uniform. He was like uh, Connie Mack, where I'm going to wear civilian clothes, which prevented him, and nobody knew the rules more than him, which prevented him from going out in the field to change a pitcher or right. to argue with the umpire or something like that. You have to stay in the dugout unless you're wearing a uniform. And that's what he chose to do. And what was interesting was is that when you think about it, here he was a manager then. Now he, he gets fired. He really quit before he was fired. What do you do then uh, with the integrity thing? Do you have him come back? And everybody wanted him back. In fact, because he was such a great umpire. But, did, but he the took American a year League off. tried did, to hire him. Didn't he take a year off between Cincinnati and Chicago? Yes, to come back to umpire. You're right. In um, 1912, he was the manager of the Reds, and then he gets fired. Now, there was, there was some people who go, well, what? Can he come back as an umpire? Well, we definitely want him. And the American League tried to steal him then. They go, hey, now you don't have the umpire against your former team that you just managed. But no, he stayed loyal. So then he umpired in 1913. Then, to make it even weirder, he becomes a manager again <laughs> in 1914 for the Cubs. And then he comes back the next year. It took him a while to come back because now reporters started going, hey, wait a minute. Is this good for the game? Having a former man, he's going to be making calls against, you know, the team he just managed and, you know, two teams he just managed, the Reds and the Cubs. And But he was so good that there was no problem. He right. just came right back. Right. All right, I got a couple of, couple of things here for you. Uh, we yes, talked sir. about we talked about his parents uh, who were deaf uh, earlier in the show. So yes. I'm going to say a name here: Luther Taylor. <laughs> yes, Luther Taylor. In a more insensitive time, he was called Dummy because he was a deaf mute. Okay, but Luther Taylor is what I like to call him. Well, in any case, would he he taught sign language since he was deaf to his teammates on the Pittsburgh Pirates so he, they could communicate. Great. There's another science. Well, he was coaching third base one day when he wasn't pitching, and he was making fun of Hank O'Day, making fun of his calls, and making fun of his you know somber personality by using sign language to his teammates in the dugout. And his dugout, the teammates in the dugout, knew the sign language, so they were laughing. And everybody is, oh, this is great, because he would do it against other umpires. Oh, and the umpire didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. However, Hank O'Day, with parents who were deaf, knew 
the sign language. So he <laughs> steps forward and he singles to Luther Taylor, you've just been ejected from the game in sign language. And the look <laughs> on Taylor's face must have been great. And uh, his teammates laughed at that. But I just think that's a great story. He just comes, hey, you're kicked out of this game. You're gone. All right. How about wow. how about Bill Dolan and being purposely ejected from games and Hank O'Day would have none of it, so Bill couldn't get to the track, I guess. You said it best, right. Uh, it's just that, right, again, it was integrity. He knew that uh, Bill Dolan was, uh, he was a gambler, and he knew there was this big race, in the city that they were playing in. And he wanted to go out and he found out that he wanted to be purposely ejected. And no matter what, Dolan called him. O'Day wasn't going to kick him out. You're staying <laughs> right here <laughs> and you're going to play this game. And he says, what? what the heck? And no matter what he called him. So uh, again, but what was interesting was that it sounds like from these two incidents, that he had a sense of humor. If anybody didn't have a sense of humor, mm -hmm. it was Hank O'Day. Mm -hmm. He was so somber. His nickname was the Reverend. Ah. He never, he never cracked a smile. Uh, Christy Matheson said in 20 years, I think he heard him laugh once. Uh, yeah, it was even some of his fellow umpires referred to O'Day as uh, Groucho behind his back. So, uh, those stories illustrate, you know, that, oh, wow, he was quite a character, but he was quite a character in another way. But uh, oh, one thing, I have to mention this, if uh, his World Series appearances. Yes, yes. That, if nothing else says how much he was respected, it's because um, World Series assignments, especially in those days before unions, they clearly reveal the greatest umpires in any era as well as in baseball history. Because, okay, you can imagine the first modern World Series. It was established in 1903. Now, the two leagues were asked to send their best umpire to work the best of nine series. It was the best of nine then. Mm -hmm. The National League, of course, selected O'Day, and the American League chose Tommy Connolly. Mm -hmm. But this is what's remarkable, is that the two umpires didn't alternate base plate during the series. O'Day worked the plate for the first four games, and Connolly was just a base umpire. Hmm. Now think about that. He's their best, his and O'Day's our best. Yeah. Oh, his reputation was so great. He was so highly acclaimed for his ability to call balls and strikes. He was so noted for his integrity that the American League had no problem having the National League umpire working the plate all the time. Hmm. For six of the first eight World Series games ever played, O'Day was the plate umpire, even though there was a partner out there. Right. It's just amazing. Let's, let's, you know, let's, let's change here for a second. His demeanor sure. off the field was quite, I don't know, sullen. He was a loner, never settled down, never bought a home. He lived in hotels. He dined alone. Why? He was a, he was like well, a hermit. Yeah. That was it. Uh, okay, he's he was renowned for his moral his moral character, 
as well as being an odd character. In fact, he was called, quote, from this one respected writer, O'Day was a strange character who lived in a shell who would emerge only when baseball season came around. Okay, it was it was amazing. There have been countless people who have devoted their lives to baseball. Oh, Red Shandies and uh, Don Zimmer, and mm-hmm. you got all these players. But few, if any, more so than Hank O'Day. He was an umpire and nothing else. Baseball consumed every fiber of his being. Again, leaving no time for anything else. He never attended parties, like you said, the theater, movie houses, any social event. He had no hobbies. You could count the number of O'Day's friends on Mordecai Brown's right hand. It was incredible. He preferred his own company. That was it. Mm. Off-season, he was a lifelong bachelor, never married, never had any romantic interests, never owned a home, lived in hotels his entire life except for a couple months with his uh, sister, always dining alone. He spent his winters working out so he could be in proper shape to meet the demands of the baseball season. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In his off hours, this is wild, he would sit by himself in hotel lobbies, read nothing, but baseball publications, the sports page, and the rule book. That's it. If a player, fan, or sports writer came up to him, he would wave them away unless they wanted to talk about baseball. Hmm. A cheerful greeting? Like, hey, hi, Hank. He would just grumble. Never answer back. Hmm. Interesting. It, it, was, it was wild. Yeah. You, brought up a, you brought up a good thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, everybody would just was amazed with his personality. Okay, yeah, they interviewed National League President John Heidler, who took over for Pulliam, and they said, what does it take to be a great umpire? And he says, well, you have to live like a hermit. You have to be away from, you can't be friends with players and fans. You are a man without a country. He was saying all this stuff. You have strength of character, courage of conviction. And even though he didn't mention Hank O'Day by name, Everybody knew who he was talking about. Interesting. But, okay, so that's it. Why was he the way he was? Okay, uh, it would take a skilled psychologist to determine why he was so secretive, why he wouldn't talk, why he was so sullen, why he was sour. Now, one explanation is that it was simply his nature, that O'Day was born not liking people. But this is certainly not true. (laughs) I found countless reports, okay, all the reports of him being a grouch, they don't appear until he becomes an umpire. Mm -hmm. When you read all the accounts from fans and teammates when he was a player, he's described as a good-natured, happy-go-lucky boy, full of fun as any other player. And what's interesting, he had only four friends his entire life. Wow. White Sox owner, Charles Comiskey, A's manager, Connie Mack, his umpire partner, Bob Emsley, and John Heidler, National League president. Mm-hmm. But you know, what's fascinating, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but it's curious that all were baseball men he knew when he was younger. Mm, he played ball with Comiskey as a teenager. He was a teammate with Connie Mack. He was an opposing pitcher with Bob Emsley. 
And John Heidler was an umpire with him in his early years. Interesting. So this is where it's interesting to psychoanalyze, socialize, and these were his only friends his entire life, even in his, when he was an umpire. Because socializing with them, I think, brought back memories of happier times for all day. Now, granted, there were many personal tragedies. His parents, you know, all that. They are also contributors. But this is my theory, okay? Uh, because even when he was 12 years old, the Chicago Fire people would ask him about it. He would tear up and wouldn't talk about it. Okay. But there's two reasons I believe he was so unsociable. The reason he was so miserable was likely the burden of being an umpire in that era. Umpire Silk Waltlin, he tried to stop a young Bill Clem from being an umpire by using Hank O'Day as an example. He says, he was told Clem, look at O'Day, one of the best umpires, the best ever. But he's miserable. Umpiring will do that to you. The hmm. abuse you get from the players, the insults from the crowds, it will change you. But you know what I think is the real reason? I think that was the reason it changed him because, you know, umpiring, that was his entire life. But I think the real reason for his unique, strange personality was he was so concerned that his integrity as an umpire was beyond reproach that he took it to ridiculous extremes. He was fearful that even the slightest personal relationship might influence his calls on the field. Wow. So he refused to get close to anyone. Don't have any friends? Don't meet in social things? No. Baseball and umpiring would be my entire life, both on and off the field. Mm -hmm. Which, mm -hmm. it's incredible. Yep, yep. Yeah. Dennis, your passion for baseball and Hank O'Day is absolutely incredible. And I know that we could talk for a lot more because we haven't covered so much. But what I want to do is end our conversation this way. Hank yes, O'Day, a guy who meant so much to the game as a player, a manager, an umpire, was consulted was consulted on in so many ways, including the rules of the game and helping to develop other umpires and the four-man crew. You know, he should Everything. have yeah. been... Uh, he, you're he, right. Yeah, he should have been the first umpire elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, maybe even as a pioneer of the game, but he wasn't. Sure, you know, 70-some-odd years after he passed away, he was enshrined. Now, what I want you to do is tell me the story about Rolly Hemond and the note that you pass along to Rolly and how that might have helped Hank O'Day get into Baseball's Hall of Fame, a place that he should have been so many years earlier. Wow, that's well said. Okay, here it is. When, okay, when you think about it. Uh, Hank O'Day in the Hall of Fame. When he died, you have to go back to that. He died in Chicago in 1935. And uh, in announcing his death, virtually every newspaper included in their headline the name Merkel. And the Merkel is one of the reasons why it took him so long to get in the Hall of Fame. 
that hmm. infamous game. Hmm. But, okay, getting ahead of myself here. In one of the obituaries, it stated, Hank is gone, because it was glowing things and how great of an umpire he was, how influential he was, with the foul ball rule and everything else, how he still affects the game now, how honest he was. But there was one line says, Hank is gone, but he'll not be forgotten. Well, sadly, he was forgotten for yep. years, Yep. particularly when it came to being bestowed baseball's highest honor. Well, you're right. You're right, Warren. He was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame 78 years after he died and <laughs> 86 years after he umpired his last game. Mm. So I asked myself, why did it take so long for such an influential baseball figure to make it to Cooperstown? Besides being the fact you're an umpire, and a lot of people hate umpires, <laughs> as I well know. But in any case, okay, the Hall of Fame had its first election in 1936. In the years following, all the great ball players were properly honored, influential pioneers, owners, managers. But what about the umpires? Those dedicated men in blue who had a positive impact on the game. Well, it wasn't until Bill Clem the most famous umpire in history, died in 1951, that attention was finally brought to the fact that no umpire had ever been inducted. Oh, so shortly thereafter, the legendary Clem was honored, along with Tommy Connolly, as the first umpires enshrined in the Hall of Fame. Now, the main question is, why Connolly over O'Day? Hmm. As good as an arbiter as Tommy was, Hank had always been considered the greater umpire. No matter what you read, the contemporary accounts, he was certainly more influential. Well, simply put, they were going to put Clem in, National League umpire. Ooh, we have to balance this out. Uh, we have to put in an American League umpire. Uh, and that's what they did to balance it. Okay? And they wanted to represent both leagues. Okay. Another reason was Connolly was uh, at that time, his name was much better known. In 1953, when the first two umpires were elected, he was the American League umpire supervisor. He was still active. His name was in the paper now and then. Mm -hmm. O'Day had been dead for 18 years. Mm -hmm. You know, he had really no family to speak of. You know, he was, he was forgotten. He was going through the midst of history. So, okay, after Clement Connolly, ah, we solved the problem. We apparently put umpires in there. It would be another 20 years before another umpire was elected. Then, six other, other outstanding umpires were inducted into the Hall of Fame. However, Hank, arguably the greatest umpire of all time, was always overlooked. So baseball historians, they, now they're trying to explain it. How come Hank wasn't, isn't being elected to the Hall of Fame? Some said he had no family to lobby for him. Others said, well, he wasn't particularly friendly. Some historians say, well, he always wanted to stay in the shadows. The players were more important, not the umpire. That's why at first he was against signals. Ball and strike? Was, oh, no, no, the umpire should be just there as an mm -hmm. arbiter, as a judge. Mm -hmm. But then he finally went with it because it improved the game. But most, several said... It was because of the Merkle game. It's a measure of revenge by New York sports writers. We're not wow. going to put this guy in the Hall of Fame. Wow. Others, others agree, but said, well, it was because 
uh, Hank's decision was one of the worst calls. Well, I say it was one of the most courageous. Okay, evidence that the Merkel decision was indeed a reason when O'Day finally was inducted into the Hall of Fame, the headlines read, despite Merkel call, O'Day gets called to Hall. <laughs> so in many ways, all of them correct. But I always thought the explanations for O'Day not being honored are reasons he should be honored. For Hank, baseball was his love, which came at the expense of having the comfort of friends and family. True, he wasn't a particularly friendly person. But you don't put a guy not in the Hall of Fame because of that. And the reason he was, was he didn't want to get close to anyone. He was sacrificing his personal life to be a better umpire. His One of the few quotes he made was, he goes, I know no friends or enemies on the field. Mm-hmm. An attitude that extended to his personal life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but as for the Merkel incident, there's no better demonstration than O'Day's integrity. And which is one of the criteria for read it. Sportsmanship, what he contributes to the game, integrity is right in there. It's a criteria for the Hall. Yep. And O'Day certainly had it. On that fateful day, it would have been much easier. A weaker ump would have did it. Just walk off the field when a winner runs scored, nobody would have said anything. But that wouldn't have been the ethical thing or the right thing to do. And, of course, goofy Bill Clem's remarks also didn't help his chances of getting in the Hall of Fame. He made his remarks 16 years after um, Odeo had been dead. Now, Clem is universally recognized as the greatest umpire in baseball history. And he was a great umpire. He's certainly more celebrated than Hank O'Day. Uh, you wouldn't be uh, you're not surprised to say that I believe O'Day was a greater umpire. Sure. See, the two men had quite different personalities. Clem was a showman. He was a self-promoter. O'Day was just the opposite. Oh, no, I'm not the show. Bill Clem enjoyed drinking, dining with the players and the managers. Hank says, oh, no, that's not right. I'm staying away. Mm -hmm. Clem would make up his own baseball rules. O'Day insisted on the enforcement of the rules always for the integrity of the game. Clem, in fact, may have been involved in more overturned protests than any other player in history, more controversial contests. He would make up rules because, oh, this is the way I want it. And the team would protest, and the National League president would have to overrule. So I always thought that he should have been the first guy. But it didn't happen. So the years passed. Now, O'Day would occasionally appear on the Veterans Committee for the Hall of Fame. He would get a smattering of votes, usually from the historians in the group. But the Veterans Committee is made up of Hall of Fame ballplayers, uh, broadcasters, um, authors, some owners, maybe a manager. So the vast majority of the people on the committee, they don't even know who the heck Hank O'Day is. And I don't blame them. They're, they're looking at the ballot, and there's, okay, there's Whitey Herzog, there's Billy Martin. There's, you know, uh, Marvin Miller, you know, non-players on this, and Hank O'Day. Who the heck is Hank O'Day? Right. So, okay, so he was never really got much support. So when his name appeared on the ballot, Hall of Fame Veterans Committee ballot in 2013, I was excited. 
But I was so, I'm the good. He's getting another chance. But I was worried that nobody knew who he was. So I was concerned that, man, it's not that he doesn't deserve it. That's not the reason he's not getting the votes. It's that nobody knows who the heck Hank O'Day was. <laughs> this is eight years later. Right. So, fortunately, I came across the people on the committee. Now, Roland Heeman, one of the great gentlemen of the game, general manager, just just a highly respected baseball figure. I saw his name, and I was fortunate enough to know him. So I contacted Mr. Heeman, and I sent him an essay. I wrote about O'Day, stating all of his outstanding contributions, what he did for the great game of baseball. It's still in effect now, highlighting his career. So I asked Mr. Heeman, would you please make copies of this report? I don't even know the addresses of some of these players Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. people on the committee. Could you please just give them the report? On Hank O'Day. So at least they can give a fair idea whether to vote for him or not vote for him. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Hema goes, great, send it to me. I may not vote for him. I may vote for him. Great. So, and I'm there, that's all I ask. So Mr. Heeman gets the report. And he contracts me back. And he goes, oh, my God, this guy was really something. And he goes, well, I'm going to distribute it. And at least I know he's going to get my vote. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy, an influential figure. So he gives it to the other members. And the next day I get a call from Mr. Heeman goes, Hank O'Day is now a Hall of Famer. That's I awesome. I still get choked up with that. That's awesome. And he goes, you can't tell anybody because, you know, nobody knows yet. But he just wanted to make my day by saying O'Day made the Hall of Fame. That's awesome. So what was amazing was he received 94% of the vote wow. from that committee. Wow. Yes. And I don't know who voted for him, who was on there, was Hall of Famer Burt Bylovin and uh, Phil Necro and uh, Sutton. I know he got Heeman's vote. There were prominent sports announcers. I'm sure that he got the historian's vote Mm -hmm. because they knew who he was. The other guys didn't. But uh, I'm glad that he's finally in because he should be remembered. Yep, he absolutely. should be on, and he's perfect for your podcast. There you go, forgotten heroes. Yep, so, absolutely. Uh, Dennis, I want to again thank you so much for taking so much time out of your evening to join me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Like I said, we could talk for a lot more about. <laughs> we could talk a could lot you? more about Hank O'Day, and we haven't even covered so much about it, but about him. And um, wow, what what a what a great figure in the history of baseball. Well, thank you for having me on. It is it was my honor, and I'm just glad that people, at least more people, know who Hank O'Day was. Certainly a fascinating character in baseball history, no matter which way you look at it. Even if you don't agree with his Merkel call, which exactly. I think was, you see, my nickname for him, I always called Hank O'Day this. Uh, out of respect, I called him the courageous curmudgeon because <laughs> that's that's what he was. And I wish I would have met him. I wish I could have a time machine, go back in time. But uh, but thank you, Warren, for everything. You got it. Thanks so much for being here. On the field as a pitcher, Hank O'Day appeared in 201 games, and he started 92 of them. 
He won 73 and lost 110. His career ERA was 3.74. As a hitter, O'Day did not meet with a lot of success. His career batting average was just 190, but he was signed to play for his arm rather than his bat. As a manager, as we talked about during today's podcast, he was okay. With the Reds, he was 75 and 78, and with the Cubs, he was 78 and 76. But again, his biggest contributions to the game came as an umpire and a consultant on the rules of the game. And his induction into Baseball's Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee in 1983 was certainly long overdue. Once again, I'd like to thank today's guest, Dennis Bingham, for spending so much time with us as we talked about, yeah, one of the most unique and important individuals in baseball history, Hank O'Day. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.